It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am excited today to introduce you to Deanne Smith. Hi, Deanne. How are you? Hello. I'm great. How are you? Good. Whereabouts in the world are you? I am currently living in the Dallas, Texas area. Ooh, is it getting to be fall down there yet? The leaves are falling. Yes. The leaves are falling. Well, since this will air sometime in February, people can envision falling leaves and warm fall weather while they're freezing themselves to death. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's still very warm here. Okay. Well, let me introduce you a little bit to Deanne. Deanne is an artist, a mother, a cancer survivor, abuse survivor, and an addict in 20 plus years of recovery who has spent most of her life struggling with the effects of complex trauma. Being diagnosed in 1989 at age 31 with PTSD and dissociative identity disorder helped her to understand what she struggled with and why. In spite of doing her best to avoid it, she became disabled in 2002. Having discovered that the latest that the latest science intersects with and supports her faith, she's combined that knowledge with her experience and skills as a trauma recovery coach, teaching others that each of us holds the keys to our own healing and how we can use them to free ourselves from the devastations of unresolved trauma. She can be found on Facebook. Her personal profile is Deanne Smith, and you can find her at deanne.smith.90. So that is that is a big mouthful. And I'm glad we have a little bit of time to unpack that. So thank you again for um, being willing to share your story. Oh, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to start my story. Well, tell us something about yourself that wasn't included on the bio. Um, okay. I, um, I'm an artist. What I, kind of artist? Um, I have used just about every medium at one point or another, trying to figure out what I liked best. Uh I've done done murals. I've done, I've created uh, dolls. I've created uh, uh, decor items. And, uh, but most recently, oh, and I've done paper mache and all the other stuff. But the thing that I like most is working with gemstones. Mm -hmm. You've been doing jewelry now, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I do wire work, which is a specific kind of, of handmade jewelry. Yeah. Um, do you use copper or do you use uh, other metal? I use gold film and, okay. I use, and I use argentium silver, which is a higher silver content than sterling. Uh, Interesting. And, oh, I love it. I love it. I got frustrated uh, using the generally available frames for gemstones cut and polished gemstones um because it didn't allow me to be creative enough uh okay so so i learned to create my own settings um, very neat do you sell yeah. them at like craft stores um at, right now it's packed my studio is packed up in storage uh, mm-hmm. because i moved to texas in december of last year and 
I'm renting a very small space right now, but um, I'm looking forward to unpacking it. Um, I, I used, I started out selling in person um, at fairs and markets mm-hmm. um, and had some things in some stores. But when I, uh, when I relocated in 2008, I lost my clientele. So I went online. Okay. And so since 2014, I had been selling strictly online. Great. So great. Um, well, um, your uh, bio kind of gives us a little a little glimpse into your life, um, but let's uh, back up a little bit to kind of childhood and tell me a little bit about what your life was like growing up. Um, I was born into a family at war with itself. Uh, it, it was a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of miscommunication Hmm. um what was the anger over well my mother's parents and my father's parents hated each other okay uh my mom and dad were uh, 15 and 16 when my mother got pregnant Uh, Mm. at which point my mother did not know the facts of life she didn't know how a person got pregnant uh but my dad did so each family blamed the other for ruining their child's life. Okay. And, and it just got worse from there. Um, and my grandparents were very, uh, I like to call them Victorian, very repressive, um, very, uh, every, everything in the family was a secret. It was nobody's business. Mm. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of friends. They had a few, very few close friends, but they were not socially active. Uh, and they uh, determined when my mom was little that she must be mentally deficient somehow because she didn't fit in with their worldview like her older brother did. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, She was just um, a challenging child, and my grandparents thought there was something wrong with her because nothing they did yielded good results in their eyes. And so uh, by the time I was born, they were um, frustrated and they had run out of ideas of what to do with my mom. So they just kept interfering in her life and they judged her as damaged and wrong. And Mm -hmm. uh, so they were abusive. They were unintentionally abusive. My mother actually spent her life believing that she must be adopted because she was so foreign in that family's culture. Um, And um, I grew up with her. Uh, They raised my mom and me together whenever we were back in their home. So many of the things so that my mom, the, so their, your parents didn't um, go out and establish themselves um, independently. They, they, yeah, they tried, but, okay. but both sets of grandparents were, were happier to split them up than to have them together. Okay. So, you know, uh, I was less than two years old when my brother was born and when my mom came home to the hosp- from the hospital with him, she came home to my grandparents' house. They literally split them up. And from mm. that point on, I was uh, in my mom's journey. 
uh, you know, she was a teenager when she had me. So mm -hmm. she married and divorced many times. And so my, and my grandparents were constantly inter interfering in her life without invitation. It's an enormous amount of conflict. There was always something major happening. Some horrible thing was, was either happening right now or we were catching our breath after it was over or there was one coming down the pike. There was never a time in my childhood when it was, it peaceful. was peaceful. Yeah. There so was no security. Turmoil. Yeah. yeah, constant. There was, there was no security. There was no uh, consistent male figure except my mom's dad. And he was a fairly withdrawn and angry person. So your grandmother was the more aggressive one in the situation. Uh, my grandmother was the most educated. Okay. And she buffered the anger and frustration of my grandfather. Okay. Uh, but yeah, she, she took the, she took the assertive and aggressive role. And yeah, at one point my, uh, my brother and I and one half sister were actually removed from her custody. Okay. And, uh, we were, we were, we spent the next four years, five years in my grandparents home. Okay. So, so you, um, were raised in abuse. Um, was it abuse by your grandmother or by your mother or her husband's or, um, part of it was uh, the same kind of unintentional abuse that my mom received um, because my grandparents played such a major role in my life. Part of it was unintentional because at the time I was born in 1958. So I grew right. up through the 60s. And at that time, the attitude was if the kids aren't directly in the middle of what's going on. If it's going on over their heads, they won't know about it and they'll be fine. Mm -hmm. which is absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, so I suffered, but I suffered in isolation without recognition that I was suffering. Um, and I had no one to go to. I tried several times to go to someone and it never turned out well. Um, and so, yeah, there was no recognition that, that I had any wounds um, there was neglect that was entirely unintentional and, and unavoidable. Um, and, you know, like my, grand, my grandparents and my mother, people in my lives, my family, all said, we love you and did things to demonstrate that they loved me, but I never felt loved. Mm. It was not that they didn't try, but they did not know how to love me in a way that I needed to be loved. And the time the era that I grew up in didn't promote that. Right. Right. There was, it was, it, it was, it was purely ignorance, unawareness, and um, they did the best they could do. And unfortunately it didn't help me very much. Did um, how many stepfathers did you have? I had, I would have to count. I don't know. Yeah. I had, uh, I had one, but one of my mom's husbands, the first one, well, one of them adopted us. Okay. Um, 
because he was military and he's going to be stationed in the Panama Canal Zone and we couldn't go with him unless he adopted us. He was a nightmare. He was, mm. he was mean for the sake of being mean. And um, that was a very traumatic time for my mom and for me um, and for my little brother who, you know, wanted to know why his dad hated him, right? Mm. So that was three years of very intense, painful misery. And uh, later uh, he was divorced. My mom divorced him. And uh, then uh, there was another guy that she married who became my stepfather. That relationship lasted quite a while, but uh, it did eventually break up. And then there were a few more. Uh, mm-hmm. I was, I was adult by then. So, well, that's uh, I mean, that alone, the relationship status constantly changing is a lot of upheaval for a kid. How, how as a kid, did you, did you process not having your father around having other people be your father? How did that affect you? Um, I, my mom says that when she and my dad split up that I went around asking strange men, are you my daddy for quite a while? So I don't remember that. Uh, so, but I, I believe that I just really missed having my dad. And from that point on, uh, my grandfather was who I looked to as the male figure in my family, but he was fairly uncommunicative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I didn't like the guys that she married. Okay. Uh, and one of the, the one that, that she was with for uh, a number of years came with five babies. Oh my. Yeah. From another marriage. I resented them. I was already struggling with the idea that I had a brother and a half sister that I had to share my mother's attention with. And suddenly there were five more. And I remember asking, was he raising them? um, Yeah, he was raising them. Wow. And that's, that makes a long story. Very, very short, (laughs) but yes. (laughs) And, And I remember talking to my mom, about missing the intimate time that we had for my first couple of years. I have a very distinct memory of the last time my mom colored in a coloring book with me. I couldn't have been more than three. And my grandparents at that point interfered and told her she couldn't be friends with her daughter if she was going to be the parent. And they didn't allow her to do that anymore. Mm. Later, just a few years later, I have five extra siblings and, uh, being given new kinds of responsibility in order to help mom with all these kids. And, and I had that conversation with her, how much I missed that. And she's like, there's just not enough of me to go around. So you felt that absence from her too, not just from your father. Yeah. I lost my dad. And then a few years later, I lost my mom. Wow. And you were exposed to addiction through your childhood? Um, Not really. Okay. My grand, you know, you know, I can talk about family secrets, but the point is that I didn't see addiction okay. in my family. 
uh, that came later okay. uh, during the rebellious years. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned to me um, in our first conversation that you kind of felt like you had a target on your back. What do you mean by that? Um, I felt like my chooser was broken. Okay. That I only attracted people who would hurt me and that I could not choose. I didn't have the capacity to recognize and choose people who would be good for me, who would be good with me. Um, If I look back from this perspective over 60 years old and look at the relationships I had, almost all of them, almost not all, but almost all of them wanted me because of what I could do for them. They did not want me because of who I was. So these, did these you, were all used. They were, they were all users. Yeah. Did you seek out a certain kind of man in your mind and end up with something else? No, no, I never had, I never had the daydream that little girls talk about, of the, you know, what, what the Prince Charming is going to look like. I never imagined that. Well, of course um, not. What would you have to measure that yeah, up against? Yeah. Well, I had stories. I was a, an avid reader from my earliest age. I think I started reading somewhere around three. And so I got into fairy tales and, and children's books and fantasy very young. And all of those have that in it, you know. But, uh, but I never did. I, I never imagined who that might be. I, I spent my, uh, I'd say my first... 20 years focusing on not being like my mother <laughs> because mm. I was angry with my mother. She kept making the same mistakes over and over again. I couldn't understand why she didn't do something differently, why she kept making the same mistakes. I understand it now. I didn't right. understand it then. And it made me very angry, but of course what we focus on is what we get. Right. And when you're driving, if you don't look at the road, you look over to the side, the car goes to the side. So that's really what happened. I was focused on in my teenage years, especially focused on not being like my mother and, I, and finding out that I was replicating my mother's story. Yeah. Yeah. So you um, have struggled with anxiety and feeling like you had internal chaos. What do you mean by that? Um, there was just a lot of really powerful emotions. Uh, all of them painful, uh, internal conflict, uh, because I, I would look, even as a small child, before I went to school, before I was school-aged, I would watch the, the things going on between the adults over my head, and I could feel the emotions in the room. I could recognize the emotions in each of those people, mm-hmm. and it was I was watching them tear each other up. And, but I was a child in a family where I was not allowed to speak. Children are not, are, are, are not to be heard there, you know? Right. And of course, we know that with children um, who grow into adults that have experienced trauma are ex- especially adept at reading a room, right? And, oh, yeah. And figuring out where the danger is and where the threat is. That's just that that comes with PTSD, which you've experienced. And um, it, that's that's a part, of, part and parcel, right? Yeah, hypervigilance. And the other thing that I did was I, I was so afraid for my mother 
that I began to feel the need to protect her, which okay. meant I needed to know more than just about what was safe for me. I also had to know about what was safe or not safe for her. Right. So, totally distorts that parent child relationship oh, yeah. and balance. Yeah. 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 She did not, so, she did not encourage that, but it didn't stop me from, from operating from that perspective. Right. Right. So you say that um, you did um, all the kinds of Christian counseling, what kinds of um, memories do you have of going through Christian counseling, Christian therapy? Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there might be some people who really don't like what I'm going to say. Um, it's okay. Go for it. We have quite a diverse, quite a diverse <laughs> listener group. So I'm sure we do. So, um, I remember as a teenager talking to a pastor because my grandparents told me that a therapist was paid, um, to do what a pastor did, right. They, they had, um, agreed, uh, motivation. Right. So I went to a pastor. <laughs> wow. Okay. And, and I actually um, said that to the pastor and he got highly indignant, and showed me his little piece of paper where he's graduated studies in psychology or something like that. But I was at that point, I was just repeating what my grandparents said, cause I didn't know much about it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really wasn't very helpful because in order to be helpful, I would have had to spend more time with him, but that was not possible at that time. And my grandparents um, had a farm uh, several hours away that they were planning to retire to. And so the years that I spent with them, we spent every weekend and every summer at the farm. And so I did not participate. It wasn't allowed to participate in after-school activities and clubs and anything that involved money or significant commitment of time. So, right. So therapy uh, with him was, was out. Yeah. He was in another city, another town. So mm-hmm. I could only see him on weekends and it just, you know, it wasn't something that would work. So, plus I think I really pissed him off. <laughs> 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 um, and then uh, later uh, I went to what, what was literally called a Christian counseling center because mm-hmm. um, my understanding was that the counseling would be biblically biblically based and that was really frustrating because it was primarily pointing out scripture and what a certain scripture was saying about spiritual and and health mental health and but there was no how-to right (laughs) there was no translating the concept into something I could actually do I was supposed to just grasp it and it just made me feel worse about myself. I felt more broken. I felt more stupid. I felt more lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And that didn't go on for very long. Plus I was paying for it and I wasn't getting any help. It it wasn't that they weren't trying Mm -hmm. again. This was very early in the eighties and they just did not have the knowledge and skills at that. Nobody did at that point. Nobody did. Right. Nobody did for, for, a long time, I didn't understand this, but you know, the first DSM didn't even come out until 1980. People weren't talking about mental health with any kind of depth yeah. or clarity at that point. I mean, it 
you know, my, my psychiatrist tells me all the time, he's like, you know, this is a rudimentary science. We are just in the infancy of getting into this. And I think people don't really, don't really realize that some of the sciences have gone on for a generation and that's not the case with, with this. Yeah. And, you know, um, there are still today in 2020, an argument about whether, um, dissociative identity disorder is a valid diagnosis. Ah, yes. Let's go there for a minute. Um, (laughs) So so you and I have this in common, and this isn't something that I talk about a lot, largely because it's misunderstood. Um, But you and I both have dissociative identity disorder, which was formerly known as multiple personality disorder and has been renamed. But it is it still remains a somewhat controversial diagnosis with some because there are people who don't believe it really exists. Yeah. And part of that is because it was first identified as multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. So uh, from the, my current perspective, from my current understanding of the newest science and technology um, that allows us to see how the brain works and, and how, how it affects the rest of the body. Um, how the two things flow together. My understanding is that we're fractured. The, Mm -hmm. the, the impetus of our most unsophisticated part, unsophisticated part of the brain, what some call the reptile brain or the monkey mind. Right. Right. That part of the brain is where our survival instincts live. And that part of the brain um, will take over our ability to think or even use words if we are, if we are threatened. Right. And that's the amygdala, which is the fight, flight, freeze um, part of our brain that just kicks into gear when something is, when something is wrong. You can't control that. That, that is literally designed to take over to ensure you, you keep breathing. Right. So what happens is when we are in a situation that we, perceived as inescapable and yet is uh, mortally threatening. And especially if it goes on for a long period of time, which uh, happens with complex trauma. Um, our, our, our mind allows us to segment off what mm-hmm. is unbearable and intolerable mm-hmm. and to hide it from our conscious awareness. This is a marvelous way that our brains allow us to retain our sanity in the most insane of circumstances. Absolutely. And, but it is hidden from us or it is partially hidden from us. And so what, what that means is that that, that experience and that part of ourselves is separated from our central nervous system. Right. Okay. Right. So what looks like, uh, a separate person living in the same body is merely the development of a fracture of the original personality, a, mm-hmm. uh, a, uh, a separate from the central nervous system and a, right. and a lack of awareness and connection. So when you call it multiple personality disorder, it sounds like some weird um, demonic thing when in fact it is right. our brain doing for us what it is designed to do, which is to protect us. 
Well, and media hasn't hasn't helped that because no. under the guise of multiple personality disorder has come this Jekyll and Hyde personality, two people in the same brain, you know, multiple yeah. people, you know, coming out and and some people do experience um, DID that way. They do experience it in in ways that are very, very um, diverse from one another. And then some of us, it's not. It's just fractures of of the original self. My, um, one of my psychiatrists explained it to me this way. He, um, he said, you know, you are a highly organized trauma person, which means you just took this experience, put it on a shelf and put it away. You took this experience, put it on the shelf. And at the point where I had a breakdown, he said, Jill, the shelf broke and now you've got a mess all over the floor. So we got to figure out, we got to figure out what to do with all this stuff. And that, that was a mental picture that made sense to me. Yeah. And for me, uh, my experience was the more extreme version. So uh, my very first coping skill mechanism was before I could speak, I started splitting off. Mm. And so that is my go-to. And being disconnected from the various parts of myself is my normal, right? Yes. Um. And so when, when I was told it was multiple personality disorder, it made perfect sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until later that I understood the difference and that, that the new identification was more accurate. I, I really thought that there was more than one of me, and it was a great relief to discover that they were all me, right? Yes. Uh, that's, that's a whole lot easier to accept and to work with than the idea that there's somebody else in there besides me. They're well, just and all less parts. threatening too. Yeah. Less yeah. threatening because it's you. Yes. So, uh, and I actually came to that conclusion myself. Uh, I think before the, the DSM clarified that, right? Before mm-hmm. they changed it. Because I did become, uh, uh, I did start becoming aware of the parts that I was previously unaware were there. Right. I did become co-conscious, not with all of my parts, but with some major ones. So uh, did you have dissociative amnesia? Yes. Yes. And for just as an explanation, that's just where you're operating in a different part and your conscious brain doesn't take that in and you're not, and you lose those blocks of time um, where you are another part. And um, I do this on a frequent basis uh, and people who don't know me well, don't see it, but um, occasionally people do see it and um, realize that I'm not there. (laughs) Yeah. You're, it's different. It is different. Um, I, there, I have had people tell me that that I scared the daylights out of them because my voice and my body language and my facial yes. expressions changed radically, uh, primarily to someone who was really angry and aggressive. Um, you know, but there, are, most of the people in my life don't know when I'm when I'm doing that. Right, it doesn't same. show up. It's not obvious. Did your children notice? No. No. They did not. Not until I had to uh, leave their dad. Okay. So I had, um, I was diagnosed in 1989, right at the point at which my first marriage was crumbling. Uh, I'd been married 11 years and I realized that I was, I, I, I had been abandoned inside my marriage 
my husband was a wonderful father, but he, and I, I remember telling him, you're just, you're just like my family. Right. Mm. Um, so there was, with you. yeah, there was no intimacy of any kind. Um, we had two kids, but that was procreation. <laughs> he wanted kids, right? And he wanted a wife and he wanted someone who would run his home. And I wanted all those things, but I wanted them based on intimacy and partnership. And that's what I didn't get. Mm-hmm. And I, I I fell in love with him. I, I didn't leave him because I couldn't love him. I left him because I couldn't live like that. And I didn't want my daughters to grow up thinking that this is what marriage is supposed to look like. Right. Um, so at some point, um, in the process of dealing with the idea that the, the life I thought I was going to get is going to end here. I've got to create a new life for myself. I literally had a breakdown. I was coming apart at the seams and I voluntarily entered a national pilot program for women's issues in 1989, which was actually the first time there was any recognition in mental health that, um, what had been called, um, shell shock and battle fatigue was, was trauma. And that trauma also came from domestic situations. Right. right. It, it was expansion from the battlefield perspective to, wow, this is bigger than just the battlefield. Um, and uh, so I sat down and explained to my children uh, about it, but it was never anything that they really saw until I pointed it out to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For them, that was their normal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, back to the Christian counseling thing, I served as a minister for several decades and as, as a minister, I know that I am not, um, skilled or trained as a therapist. That's a very different skill set, education, everything. Um, yeah. Do you feel like uh, you ran into Christian counselors that felt like they were therapists and operated under that understanding? I think that the people that I worked with within that context, look, I went to pastor's wives. I went to women's Bible study groups. I went to all the options available to me within the church community, within the Christian community. And I think every one of them either recognized they had no qualifications for counseling and that what I wanted help with was beyond what they could offer me, or they genuinely um, believed that they had the skills that were available to have, right? Mm. Unfortunately, in the 80s and the 90s, that wasn't much. Right, right. It just... They, they could have had the very best skills available. They could have been top of the class when they graduated and had wonderful experience with all kinds of things. But with what I was dealing with, they were unequipped. They right. did, it wasn't available. So at what point were you diagnosed with PTSD and dissociative identity disorder? When did, when did diagnosis enter the picture? So in 1989, that pilot program ran for six weeks. And when I got out of that program, Um, My caseworker, who had been assigned to me when I entered the program, came to me and said, I have already had you approved for disability, for PTSD, and all you have to do is sign here. And I said, no, thanks. So I was approved, but I did not take benefits. Mm -hmm. I was still 
determined to support myself. And I did not want any labels of disability attached to me in employment. Yeah. So at, that was at the same time that employer, employers were being offered this new incentive to hire people with disabilities. So okay. it, I just didn't want, didn't want to go there. So I, uh, I was invited into uh, private therapy by one of the people who participated in that program and did group therapy while I was in the program, she said, would you like to come work with me? And I was like, yeah, sure. And it was during my one-on-one therapy sessions with this therapist that both of us were stunned to discover that I had parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, nobody was prepared for this. She actually went back to the guy who ran that program and talked to him about it. Um before she agreed to see me any further. Um, But that's also the point at which I started using drugs. I had used uh, drugs in a more typical exploratory way as a teenager. I had gotten into some heavy duty things attached to the whole drug environment that I was naive enough not to recognize what was going Mm -hmm. on, but uh, had gotten out of it long before I got married and um, I was so devastated by losing my marriage and having to leave my children with my husband and I could not support them or care for them at this point in my life. And he was a great dad. Um, I just, that I ended up uh, picking up drugs again. What drugs were you using? Um, uh, marijuana makes me sick. <laughs> alcohol makes me sick. I can't realize alcohol. So I ended up with crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that the way I responded to that drug was very different from the other people who were using it. Uh, and it made me feel much, much better. I mean, did it make you feel normal? It, it made me feel peaceful. Yeah. I remember um, the insurance company when I was in that six-week program said that if I did not take medication, I didn't need to be in the hospital, right? So oh. they, I finally agree. Up until then, I wouldn't take any medication, but, uh, but they finally convinced me to take some Prozac, which was also fairly new at that time. Mm-hmm. And they gave me the smallest dose they could give me. And it took effect in three days. It was supposed to take 10 days. It took effect in three days. And I remember looking at the therapist that I was working with it in, in the program and saying, my mind is absolutely quiet for the first time ever. If this is what is normal, no wonder other people think I'm weird. Mm. I had never. Oh, had- so you had that kind of clarity with it. Yeah. It was, it was the first time ever that, that my, mind was quiet and orderly. Um, yeah. And so uh, when I used crack, that is exactly the effect I got. I got the same effect that most people get when they smoke pot, right? Okay. You smoke weed, you feel relaxed, you kind of feel happy and everything is kind of peaceful. And there's, there's a loss of tension and stress. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what crack did for me which is not what I saw it do to everybody else, but that's what it did for me. So what did it take to get you out of, out of um, using crack? 
Um, two things. One, recognizing that it was killing me. Uh, I, I was living with a guy who was an addict before I hooked up with him. And, uh, and he would, I was waitressing. I loved waitressing. So that's what I chose to do. I was waitressing. I would come home and he would take the money out of my pocket and, and pay for the drugs with it. So we were not, we were struggling to pay bills. We were not buying a lot of food. And I lost an enormous amount of weight. And I realized that the only reason that this guy was with me was because he could take my money. Mm -hmm. So uh, I called my mom and said, you need to come get me. And I remember she picked me up. We gathered what little possessions I had, threw them in the back of the station wagon. And I got in the car and she looked at me and she busted out crying. She said, do you have HIV? Do you have AIDS? Do I need to take you to the hospital? That's how thin I was. Mm. Um, I said, no, I don't have HIV. I just need food. And I remember going to Arby's and getting a sandwich and only being able to eat not even half of it, maybe a third of it, because I didn't have the stomach capacity to hold a full sandwich. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, I want to make sure we have time to talk about PTSD to free and um, what is this program and what is your goal with it? Okay. Um, I do want to say that um, I did overcome the addiction. Yes. Yes. And yeah, (laughs) you know, I was in addiction for active addiction for five years Mm. and uh, I married a second time and then had to split from that guy because somehow I managed to reproduce my first husband and the second husband. Uh, okay. So uh, I didn't divorce him. I just moved 125 miles away and isolated for 12 years. Wow. Uh, um, I created convalescent center for myself at home. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of great therapists. I had two fabulous therapists during that time. And so I got a lot of growth that was very slow, very small and hard to recognize. Mm. But I was agoraphobic during those years. I couldn't leave my house without enormous effort and high anxiety. And uh, one day I went to sleep agoraphobic and I woke up the next day without it. Interesting. I wanted to go visit a friend 125 miles away and it sounded like a good idea to me. I was excited, not the whole mental and emotional turmoil of just going to the store didn't exist. So I called her up and said, hey, how about, I hadn't seen her in 10 years. How about a day trip? She said, get your ass here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I had a lot of questions and I went looking for answers. And these are different questions from the questions I've been asking all along. You know, how did this happen? This was spontaneous. How did this happen? And if we know how it happened, how the hell are we not able to make it happen on purpose? So I went looking for those answers and I found through, it took me quite a while, but I found, I found someone who had put together the tools with the, based on the latest science and, and comprehension of how the brain works. 
and put together a modality that leveraged that knowledge to make effective tools that worked quickly Mm -hmm. and cumulatively and progressively and permanently. And I, I, I bought the program so I could learn the tools. And Mm. from that point forward, there was no stopping me. I, um, I learned those tools. I accomplished more in six months than I accomplished in 30 years. Um, those 30 years of therapy contributed to preparing me for those tools, but those mm-hmm. tools, those tools took it to a, a whole nother level. And uh, from that point on, it was all about, you know, this, this is, everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to know this. Um so PTSD to free was the program I set up to use those tools to teach mm-hmm. people who had, you know, childhood trauma, complex trauma, unhealed trauma, unrecognized trauma. I mean, a lot of the trauma I dealt with was totally unrecognized for decades. There are people that go, oh, yeah, that happened to me, but it wasn't that bad. Well, it actually it was. wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, it was. Um, so I, I want these tools available to everyone, everyone. And the people that uh, created the program that I bought into have taken me on as a partner in their, in their development of these tools and the programs too. Use so them. is it, is it like a coaching program that you, that you walk somebody through? It is. It's, it's basically three primary steps. Um, we address the influences, people, and events in your life. And then we address your emotions. And what we know is that when you have an event or an engagement with a person or a situation with a high emotional content, high emotional response, you put those two together and you make up a story about yourself or about the world. That's called a belief. Mm-hmm. So we deal with first the influences, then we deal with the emotions, and then we deal with the beliefs. Mm-hmm. And the primary, the primary focus is clearing the reticular activating system. And to do, and most people don't never heard of it. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard of it. Um, it is an actual physical structure in your brain that operates basically as the gatekeeper between your conscious and your unconscious mind. So what we're doing is we are creating a conversation between your conscious mind and your unconscious mind that allows them to cooperate and accomplish self-healing. Here's here's what I know. After uh, over a decade of learning that my body is designed to heal itself, if I get uh, out of its way and support it, I suddenly realized, oh, my mind is also designed to self-heal. Mm-hmm. We, our DNA has, has self-healing processes built into it for every aspect of our existence, of, of being human. And the only reason we're not using those processes is because we don't know about them. Right. So, I don't know how to access that. Yeah. Uh, well, we have only recently become aware of it. Right. So uh, the whole point of of my program is to lead people through the process of learning these tools. Mm -hmm. When you know these tools, you can 
take care of the uh, influences. You can take care of the emotions and you can recognize a belief that may have served you when you formed it, but no longer serves you. Mm -hmm. It's creating problems and you can remove that belief and replace it with one that does serve you. So what do people who you worked with say about the program, say about your work? Well, I was talking to one of them right before uh, this interview. And she said to me, uh, you were so worth finding. Uh, she said, when I, I want you to know that what I, what I learned in, with you, what I learned with you changed every aspect of my life. Mm, and it's beautiful. still, that was last year. <laughs> that was the last year. She said, it's still getting better. It's still continuing. And that's the point. These tools leverage what your, what your mind and your body are already designed to do and continue the healing process. Yeah. Very cool. Well, how do people, how do people um, learn more or reach out to you or read about what you're talking about? Where can they go to kind of find a hub of information? Right now, uh, I, like I said, I am on the team of the larger organization that I got my first taste of these tools from. Um, so I have joined that, that group um, as a member of the team. And we are building right now. We are building the hub. Mm -hmm. So I don't have an informational hub for someone to come to. Okay. Um, How do they uh, find you then? They can find me on Facebook. Okay. Um, my name is D apostrophe capital A N N Smith D and Smith. And uh, if you find my profile page on Facebook, you can message me. You can read uh, the things that I post about how these tools work and what kind of results you get. Great. Well, I have one more question for you. Um, I, you know, we are a faith-based uh, program and I love to talk to people about how their um, faith has grown or changed through uh, trauma and into healing. You are one who says that um, God has walked with you through all of your life. How did you know that? I can't ever think of a time and I do have memories that go back as early as before I could speak. And I can't ever think of a time that I was not aware of God's presence. Now, if I don't have language, I'm not conceptualizing God. But as soon as I was able to begin to speak, I talked about God. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, God made me promises that he's keeping. Um, he gave me visions. He gave me dreams. He gave me words. He gave me knowledge. And it was kind of weird, right? Because Southern Baptists don't talk about those kinds of things, right? <laughs> I had to figure some of that. I had to figure some of that out for myself, right? You got to find the Pentecostals for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think I did later. They weren't Pentecostal, but they're, um, they're close, right? Charismatic. Yeah. But really, even as a child, I was recognizing God's presence in my life. And um, now, now I'm looking at science and I'm looking at technology and I'm looking at my faith and I am watching science, the newest science, support everything that scripture says about a healthy life, about a healthy mind, a healthy heart, healthy relationships, what is right and good. You know, and I'm just like, this is 
beyond cool. This is so beyond cool. So science, it, science and religion have sort of squared off against each other. And if you're mm-hmm. for one, you can't be for the other. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm taking the informational dots from each of those disciplines and I'm making a bridge because they support each other. They connect. And that's where my message comes from. Very, you know, cool. God, God designed us with these healing processes built into our blueprint. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet it takes science for me to learn about them. So they're not opposing forces. They're right. They're not forces. mutually exclusive. No, no, they're mutually yeah. inclusive. And the further we go in our understanding of either one allows us to further under to, to recognize the, the inclusiveness of both of them. So we were designed to self-heal. That is the message I'm going to spend the rest of my life uh, making sure everybody who knows me hears come out of my mouth. We are designed, God designed us to self-heal and we now have what the knowledge to use those processes to do that healing. Mm. Well, Dan, I just, um, I have enjoyed talking to you and um, hearing your passion. We managed to turn a half an hour conversation into 50 minutes. Um, So (laughs) no, no, I thoroughly enjoyed myself and um, enjoyed getting to know you. And I'm glad that uh, listeners can have a way with it. They can find you if they want to find out more. So thank you for your generosity of time and information and passion. I just, really appreciate it. And I appreciate the connections that, that you and I have, um, along diagnosis and understanding and faith. And I just, I just really feel a connection with you. So thank you. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share so much of my story. And, but most of all, for me to, to have a a, a public platform where I can say what I'm going to spend the rest of my life saying, which is you don't have to live with unhealed wounds. It's not, it's not necessary. We now know what nobody knew in the eighties and nineties. We know now. (laughs) We're getting smarter, Deanne. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the post-traumatic faith podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, jillreilly.author and on Twitter, jillreillyauthor. Email jill at jillreilly.org.